Welcome to the podcast of Sound Medicine, Public Radio's weekly magazine about medicine and health. I'm your host, Barbara Lewis. This free podcast is made possible by Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, Indiana's premier urban health and life sciences campus, IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. I'm Barbara Lewis. Coming up on Sound Medicine, the doors that might open with precision medicine. When you've got genetic information from that little drop of blood that you might give, and then you match it against family history and health records, you've got a really powerful tool. You have potential for patients to be more engaged in their own health care. Plus, who really owns your medical records anyway? Both groups, consumers, patients, and doctors, health professionals, they, they both think they own the records. How police are learning to spot driving while high. They often are impaired but don't perceive themselves to be impaired and feel that they're actually safe drivers. What you'll often see sometimes they'll be driving really, really slowly. And saving rural hospitals and why it matters. It's also important for the economic infrastructure for a community to invest in keeping those services readily available. That's coming up next on Sound Medicine. Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. Welcome to Sound Medicine, public radio's weekly news magazine about medicine and health. I'm Barbara Lewis. We begin this week with new efforts underway to take all the data that's swirling around in medical labs and hospital record rooms and making sense of it in a way that actually helps move medicine forward. President Obama proposed a big boost in research into what's now called precision medicine during his State of the Union address. It's been a recurring theme in medicine over the past decade that finally, with better understanding of the human genome coupled with massive amounts of data, we're going to be able to craft treatments that move beyond one-size-fits-all into something that is personally tailored to you. I asked Sound Medicine's ethics expert, Dr. Eric Meslin, who has done a lot of work in this field, to walk us through some of the challenges, starting with what we call it. We've been trying for years to come up with a good term that captures all the accuracy of science and what we can do with genetics and remembering that we're trying to apply it to the care of patients. So whether it's precision or personalized or targeted, we're really talking generally about the same thing. And I guess some of it's branding, but to be perfectly honest, it's it may be the best term we've come up with, mostly because the word personalized, as in personalized medicine, is pretty old. Doctors have always thought that the care they have provided was personalized. So this is a bit of a technical spin on an old topic. Well, this effort is partly due to the intersection of lower costs for genetic sequencing and uh, really the power of big data. Is that correct? Yeah, it really is. And and adding to that big data story are really two, uh, two streams that are now crossing very nicely. One is, as you say rightly, Uh, the ability to look deeper and deeper into the human genome and find more and more interesting things at lower cost. What a great opportunity. Plus, the longstanding interest that we've had in electronic health records and the ability to gather health information more generally. So when you've got genetic information from that little drop of blood that you might give or a tumor sample or something else, and then you match it against a family history and health records, you've got a really powerful tool Uh, for diagnosing and treating disease. So President Obama made the analogy that this is like matching blood donors, you know, and I'm thinking, okay, there's A, B, and O, (laughs) you know, it seems like this is just a little bit more complex than that, but what is it a good analogy? Well, you know, in this case, I think the idea is as much about finding the the right information that will help the right patient get the right drug and the right treatment at the right time. You use that word right a lot and it sounds very powerful. We've had this ability for at least 10 years or so looking at uh, genes and trying to figure out whether misspellings in the genome uh, make someone more likely to respond to a drug or not. So that the technology is not brand spanking new, but I think the the more interesting part of the announcement by the president is that we're probably going to enter the world that many other countries, including uh, the United Kingdom, uh, have entered, and that's involving more and more people in what is essentially a large uh, database, a large biobank, 
where people can sign up and agree to participate in a, in a pretty big study. Mm-hmm. Well, and more than half the budget is going towards recruiting one million volunteers. I mean, what will they, what will they be asked to do and, and what really will we get from that? Well, this sort of reminds me of that game that people played in the, in the, the parks when they were young and you'd decide who was going to go up to bat first and someone would put their hand on the bat and someone would put their hand higher up the bat. So you've had large studies going on for many years, the Framingham study, uh, the nurses study. There are many longitudinal studies where we've tracked uh, people and their health. Uh, and what this is doing is it's adding the, a genetic component to many of those existing studies and then creating another one on top of it. So, for example, the United Kingdom has this large and very active project called the UK Biobank where 500,000 Britons agreed to roll up their sleeve and give a a blood sample or a cheek swab, and that would be deposited into a large uh, repository that scientists with ethics permission and science approval could go in and and start learning things. So not to be outdone, the UK had 500,000, so we're going to have a million. The important thing is not like it's some space race, whoever has the most people wins, on the other hand, whoever has the most people in their banks can can actually learn more specific information, um, learning more, as I say, about the, the misspellings of someone's genome so that we find a patient who has a, a particular kind of cancer um, might be more responsive to a drug than someone else. You can only learn that with more and more and more and more data. And the fun part about the U.S. is we've also got, in addition to great scientists, we've got some of the the wicked fastest computers in the world to do all these calculations. Well, let's talk a little bit about the ethics, though, and the kind of the privacy aspect of it, because, you know, in the UK, you have government medical care, and it really doesn't matter if you have some problems because the insurance company isn't going to deny you care. Here, it's different. Although in the UK, they're finding the same issues. I don't think this is a uniquely American problem. Anytime you create large repositories of personal health information, you raise the specter of not just privacy and confidentiality, who will learn secrets of my genome that I'd rather they not know, but I might also learn things about myself or my family or those close to me that I wasn't prepared for. Um, In addition to the privacy concerns, uh, which I personally think can be handled with with some good governance and some good regulation and good guidelines. There are also issues around commercialization. Who is going to be using this information for what purpose? Again, I'm, I have no problem with good collaborations between industry and, and universities, but we've got to have proper rules in place and we have to make sure that everybody knows who's doing what. No, we hear more about targeted therapy when it comes to cancer treatment. But so is that the area where we might see the first breakthroughs or are there other areas of of science and medicine that we might? That's the main announcement that that the president made. And there has since been some very important further announcements by the NIH and others by Dr. Collins, the director of the NIH, describing cancer as one of the most important areas for a couple of reasons. One is, first of all, cancer doesn't discriminate. Lots of people get cancer, and there are lots of different types of cancer. But there are also a number of cancers that are, relatively speaking, rare. Not many people have them. And there is this uh, fear, or there has been this fear, that since there really isn't a market for drugs to treat people with a pretty rare cancer, uh, there's not going to be much development. We've seen that in some areas already. Well, using these high-technology ideas and actions by scientists, we're probably able to do more for more cancers now than than ever before. Maybe, possibly, fingers crossed, living up to Richard Nixon's almost infamous statement from, uh, from 40 years ago that we're declaring a war on cancer. Much as I don't like the military metaphor, I think we're a lot closer to conquering some of those diseases than we were before. All right, Eric, it's always good to have you here. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Dr. Eric Meslin directs the IU Center for Bioethics. Another scientist who will be watching how this marriage of genomics and big data moves forward is Dr. Andrew Sue of the Scripps Research Institute in California. And recently he explained that when you're talking about big data, you're dealing with three V's, volume, variety, and velocity. And each poses its own challenge. 
organizing big data is a huge challenge, right? Um, you know, if we talked about the 10 zettabytes of, of data that exist in the world, probably a very small proportion of that is in a format that can be uh, easily integrated and mined. Yeah, so what are uh, some of the more likely ways um, that experts might use the power of big data to improve our health, maybe in the in the near future, an example? So, you know, I think there are uh, definitely potential advantages in sort of the efficiency of healthcare as we're able to integrate more and more across our medical records. I think that will be uh, just a an improvement in the efficiency of how healthcare is delivered. You also have, especially through the sensors, you have potential for uh, patients to be more engaged in their own healthcare. So if I have continuous readings on my activity levels and my, you know, cholesterol levels, uh, it may encourage me to be more attentive to my own personal healthcare. And then from my personal point of view, my research program really focuses back on better understandings of the mechanisms of health and disease to so sort of the basic genomics research. And there, if you, you know, for example, take cancer as an example, uh, traditionally, right, cancer is mostly treated based off of the tissue of origin, right? Do you have kidney cancer versus lung cancer versus breast cancer and so forth? But what we're increasingly finding as we have new technologies to interrogate these tumors is that oftentimes the molecular basis of these different tumors in different sites often share more in common with each other than initially appreciated. So for example, there uh, is a particular mutation that is often found in skin cancer, and now we are observing it also in colon cancers and ovarian cancers. So it suggests that those cancers, regardless of where they originated, the cancers that share a common mechanism should be treated more similarly uh, than other subtypes of these cancers. Now, your research group recently received a grant from the NIH. What aspect of big data will your project be looking at? Right. So, so this grant is, is part of an NIH initiative on big data and transforming that to knowledge. Uh, the particular themes of our center, uh, well, so there's one piece about uh, building infrastructure for big data analysis. Uh, so community infrastructure that many people can use. The theme there is often uh, bringing the analysis routines to the data warehouses themselves. Uh, so data analysts aren't, you know, d downloading terabytes and terabytes of data. Let's actually bring the analysis routines to where the data live. Uh, this, a second theme that we have is, is on cardiovascular health. Uh, we have uh, researchers in our consortium who, who have a heavy interest in, in how we organize molecular data around cardiovascular disease. Uh, and a third theme I would say, and this is the particular emphasis of my lab, is how we uh, think about crowdsourcing and citizen science in the context of big data. Uh, can we build platforms that allow the entire community to collectively and collaboratively work together on some of these big challenges. And as we get better at using batches of information at this level, will it become easier to translate raw data into this practical information uh, that we can use for our health? Uh, and this, this is uh, the million-dollar question, right? And uh, I think it highly depends on having some well-trained individuals. And this, uh, again, is one of the, the main emphases of the NIH's big data initiative, is making sure we have a workforce that um, understands the, the, the power of big data, but also has the practical skill sets to uh, uh, answer some of these questions. Okay, well, first stop, we'll all take statistics, all right? So the kids out there <laughs> has to take basic statistics and, and start from there. No doubt. All right. Well, Andrew, Sue, thank you so much for joining me, and thank you for your wonderful examples of, um, of what big data is. I, I think I understand it a lot better now, thanks to you. Great. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Dr. Sue is an associate professor of molecular and experimental medicine at the Scripps Research Institute in La Jolla, California. Big data, bigger brother. Don't bother running, they're right behind you. They got your picture, they stole your number. Well, click, click there, right behind you. And all these spiders spread the virus. They freak the gospel in, they stole the sign.
I'm Eric Metcalf, and your sound medicine stat is 70. You've probably seen a cow with a sign telling you to eat more chicken. Well, it's time to picture a chicken telling you, don't bathe me. The average American will eat about 87 pounds of chicken this year. But though we like our chickens, many of us don't trust our chickens. So according to a new survey, nearly 70% 70 of Americans washed their chicken before cooking it. The problem is a lot of germs stick to it anyway. And these are germs that are just going to die if you cook it properly. But washing does knock loose a lot of bacteria, and some of these could cause you a nasty illness. The germs cascade invisibly onto you, your sink, and your countertops. For someone who has a thing about chicken germs, you may have just flung them everywhere. Skip the bath, the experts say, and just cook the thing. If you can't stand eating an unwashed bird, perhaps eat more tofu. That was the number 70, and I'm Eric Metcalf. Coming up, some advice on how you can take charge of your own medical records. Spoiler alert, it is not that simple. The medical profession has been so incredibly paternalistic from its origins that it's never thought that it's the patient's entitlement to have their records. And later, it's easy to measure when someone is too drunk to drive. We'll talk about efforts to measure when someone is too high to get behind the wheel. They often are impaired but don't perceive themselves to be impaired and feel that they're actually safe drivers. You're listening to Sound Medicine. Underwriting for Sound Medicine's health news headlines comes from Marion University College of Osteopathic Medicine. More information at marion.edu slash medical school. I'm Jill Dittmeyer with this week's health news headlines. About 11.5 million Americans signed up for health insurance during the sign-up period that ended last Sunday. The 150,000 or so people who had begun the enrollment process by the deadline are being allowed until February 22nd to finish. People who don't have health coverage may end up facing a penalty on this year's tax returns. The CDC reported this week that the measles outbreak is not over yet. There have been 141 cases reported so far. That's up from 20 last week. The CDC says most of the new cases are the result of non-vaccination. If your teenager seems to be yawning more, you're not imagining things. A new study published this week in Pediatrics reports that less than two-thirds of 15-year-olds are getting seven or more hours of sleep each night. Now, that's down from 72 percent a few decades ago. Boys tend to get less sleep than girls, and blacks and Hispanic teens tend to sleep less than Caucasians. Even so, the National Sleep Foundation survey found that most teens were not aware that they are likely sleep-deprived. Also on the subject of sleep, children over age two might actually be better off if they skip an afternoon nap. A survey of 26 studies of children's sleep habits suggests that preschoolers who nap during the day tend to go to bed later and get less sleep than those who skip the nap. The lead authors are both from Queensland University in Australia. They looked at nighttime sleep patterns as well as behavior, stress, obesity, accidents, and thinking skills. And their conclusion? There's just not enough evidence that naps help improve the health or well-being of preschool children. They make no mention of the well-being of the parents, however. Reporting for Sound Medicine News, I'm Jill Dittmeyer. You're listening to Sound Medicine. I'm Barbara Lewis. So here's a question for you. Who owns your medical records? Since it's all about you, should you have the right to take a copy home to read? Or since it's the product of work done by your doctor and other professionals, does it belong to them? Our next guest has some pretty strong opinions on that. Dr. Eric Topol is the Chief Academic Officer of Scripps Health in La Jolla, California. Welcome back to Sound Medicine. It's always good to talk with you. Well, it's great to talk with you, Barbara. Well, your online journal Medscape published a survey that asked both the public and health professionals who owned these medical records. Talk about the difference in in point of view that you found. Well, it's really interesting because both groups, consumers, patients, and doctors, health professionals, they they both think they own the records. Um, And of course, the consumers and patients, um, that's that's wishful thinking because they don't own really anything. Legally, records are owned by uh, the medical community. That's the way it's always been. Even though there's been outcries for decades that that should be flipped. Uh, and in fact, it should be the medical community that has access, permission to look at the records and use them or shared. 
so that survey was really indicative of the gap. That is, uh, even a substantial number of physicians think that the patients uh, own the records, which is surprising because, of course, they, they, it's far from owning. They have a, as difficult uh, time, as you pointed out, just to access them. So you have a new book out called The Patient Will See You Now, in which you note that obtaining your own medical records is, quote, one of the most frustrating experiences in the world of healthcare today. That is a pretty high bar. Um, that, just, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> just how hard is it for most people to access their records? Well, um, firstly, of course, it's, it, it's not proper that there's so much struggle, uh, but it also, not just the inconvenience, it can be a significant expense. Uh, so it, it doesn't follow suit that it's the person's records they paid to have this medical work done, and then they have to beg and, and grovel to get the information. So would we have them, I mean, for those of us who date back to where you didn't have electronic medical records, I mean, would we right. really be able to find um, childhood uh, medical records? Well, that's the problem. The medical profession has been so incredibly paternalistic from its origins that it's never thought that it's the patient's entitlement to have their records. It's always uh, been that patients wouldn't be able to handle the information. They would have a terrible anxiety, and uh, it, would, it, it would create havoc. But recently, many studies have shown that that's not true, that, in fact, there's more comfort and more confidence in care by patients having complete access, full transparency of things like office notes and, and all the other data that you would find in an uh, electronic health record. Would we understand it? I mean, if yes. I was... Uh, okay. I, that's the thing is that if it's put in a way uh, that is understandable, that is, if physicians and uh, health professionals or cognizant that this is not going to be a private matter just for the medical community, but rather it's actually for the patient and the consumer. Uh, it can be put in language that's quite understandable, and, in, and studies really objectively show that it actually enhances a uh, sense of comfort rather than uh, the, the, the fear uh, issue. So legally speaking, though, I mean, who does own yeah, So legally speaking, uh, it is the physician... It is the medical community, like the hospital. So it's a, it's really um, the healthcare professional community that owns the records today. But that really isn't going to last because in this digitized world where medicine is going to be increasingly democratized, there, people are just not going to put up with this. Uh, it's the only uh, you know service of uh, of any industry where you pay for the uh, work. <laughs> Uh, your care, and you don't have anything to show for it in terms of um, the, the receipt or the records of what actually happened. So you go and have the scan or you have these lab tests. Now, some physicians, of course, are very progressive, and they are very um, willing and, and go out of their way to share this information, but that's not the, the usual case, unfortunately. That's a distinct minority. So a lot of physicians are working for healthcare systems now. You know, there's very few that just hang out their shingle anymore. So is it that in those cases, does, does, if you're working within a healthcare system, is it the healthcare system that legally owns the records or is it still the yes, physician? Yes, and, and there's a good thing about that that you're pointing out is that when the health system makes the move, as we've seen, for example, with Kaiser Permanente and, and a few others, where they say, we're going to make all your information and that's hospitalizations, labs, scans, uh, the whole shoot and match, uh, available instantaneously through mobile access, through a mobile app. And that's the way health systems really need to move forward. And eventually the ones that don't do that are going to be left behind because uh, people really do want to have uh, instant access because you never know when you're going to need this information. Uh, of course, you can't plan a medical emergency. A lot of physicians believe that this is their work product. And they uh, developed it and they uh, nurtured it, and therefore they're entitled to it. But I think that is going to be a philosophical uh, gap that is not going to be tenable over time because now that everything's digitized, um, increasingly um, so, that it's portable, it's eminently uh, transferable. And this idea of transparency and sharing at the minimum. Uh, should be, I think, the new way. And so there, there's a, li a long list of excuses, but none of them really hold water when you get down to it. Mm -hmm. And it seems like 
the bigger health systems anyway, um, are always offering the patients to go log on to their, you know, to see their cholesterol results or to see their routine, you know, exam results. So is this change kind of inevitable in some ways? I do think so. And that's really um, the whole theme uh, of the book I, I wrote because it's just records, of course, are one element. But because of the whole medical world getting digitized, uh, uh, this is just representing the shift of what has to come because this information is very empowering and increasingly so. It's not just what's in these electronic records historically, but in fact, you'd be generating your own medical data by sensors that connect to your smartphone that are wearable or doing your lab tests through your smartphone, through adapters, uh, even some imaging that you can do through mobile devices, medical imaging. So the point being is that there's so much other ways medical information is going to be obtained and generated by patients. And so the old system of how we kept this stuff together and kept it uh, in an insulated environment away from the patient, uh, that's just not going to hold up over time. Okay, so now you've got us all riled up. We're all standing up, shaking our fists and saying, I, we want our medical records. What's the most efficient process then for, for getting them from our doctors? And I'm understanding that maybe efficient isn't... <laughs> yeah, the, the... well, you know, we got a lot of obstacles. Two-thirds of physicians are unwilling to give their office notes to patients because of the concerns about uh, engendering uh, anxiety and medical legal, as you mentioned. Um, so... It depends on the doctor. It depends on the health system. Right now, there's no uniformity. But if enough people are clamoring to have this information, the rightful ownership of it, no less just the access to it without having to pay, and in an electronic digital format that is easily you know, sent to a, another doctor, another hospital when uh, another opinion is being rendered, you know, this is really um, future. Um, it, it just, unfortunately, today, uh, there's not enough assertiveness on the part of consumers to demand it. Okay, so I, I'm trying to figure out. I call a, a, my doctor's office, and the, they say, "No, we don't do that." Right. So then what? <laughs> you know. Well, so. that might be time to rethink about: Is this the most progressive medical care I can get? Okay. I mean, and because there is the challenge of paternalism will be consumer-driven. Um, and say, you know, I want, a, I want a doctor and I want a health system that's going to recognize and respect me uh, because it's my body, it's my information. I'm going to be generating a lot of that, and I ought to own it or at least have it all. So, you know, these should, I think, raise some significant questions for each patient consumer out there as to are they getting state-of-the-art current care? Uh, are they being looked after the way they should be? Okay, so I don't have any recourse. If they say no, my recourse is to find another doctor well, right now. Well, you know, they, they, they don't have to give the office notes. Hospitals and health systems do have to give the other records, but they do so, um, you know, making it challenging with having to sign releases and having to get, you know, pay and, and have a fax machine and all this kind of stuff. It's very standard in many hospitals today. Uh, but one of the things that's really noteworthy is 10% of medical images scans are replicated because the patient is unable to get the prior scan itself to give to the doctor who is going to order another one. So there's a tremendous amount of waste and, and unnecessary costs associated with this problem. So if we want to, you know, there, we need, you know, people to get up and, and clamor, you know, and, and people uh, to insist, I mean, who are we, uh, who are we complaining to? I mean, who well, you know, what may be the force that really uh, drives this is the really large consumers that have hundreds of thousands of employees in their family. And if they say, if, if our employees don't get this, then we're going to change their health care providers. It, it may take big forces like that um, to really start to push on this, and then things will start to fall into place. But it's hard to um, think that this current problem uh, is going to be sustainable uh, or tolerated a whole lot longer. Do you see, Dr. Tobel, do you see um, bigger any bigger corporations kind of heading that way? Because I think you're right. I, I don't know, you know, if, if you just are curious about your health records and you keep banging your head against the wall, I think after a while you're going to say it's not that important to the, 
as an individual. Right. Well, it's interesting. There are several uh, of the largest companies in the United States that are interested in, in, in pushing on this. And what's really interesting, too, is the entry of the major tech companies into healthcare in a big way, uh, the likes of uh, Google and Apple and uh, IBM and many others. So between the two, uh, we're talking about a, a very a substantive um, force that could be applied both technically as well as fiscally on this matter, and that may help accelerate things. Well, Dr. Eric Topol, author of the new book, The Patient Will See You Now, thank you so much for talking with me. It's always oh, a pleasure. Thanks for having the chance. Dr. Eric Topol's new book is The Patient Will See You Now. We'll put more information about it on our website. Just go to soundmedicine.org. You know the stereotype. Boys do better than girls when it comes to math and science. Well, now that myth really has been busted, but researchers are turning their attention to teenagers and their reading skills now. Turns out there's some gender disparity there, too. Jill Dittmeyer reports in this week's Sound Medicine Checkup. Experts say it's no secret that girls do better than boys in school. In terms of you know having to sit still for long periods of time, pay attention to what somebody's saying, you know, in particular the teacher, and just being generally more responsible and conscientious. So they do their homework more, they take tests more seriously. Professor Dave Geary and his colleagues at the University of Missouri wanted to know how much better, so they studied the academic habits of teenagers from around the world. We looked at overall achievement across reading, math, and science for the 15-year-olds that participated in the study. And pretty much everywhere in the world, except for a few exceptions, boys are, uh, are falling behind girls, sometimes a little bit, and in some places, quite substantially. Specifically, reading, which concerns researchers. Yes, we, we have issues with not enough women going into science and other STEM fields. But we have a completely separate issue of many, many adolescent boys who will then become young adults who are not well educated. And these are the guys who are going to have trouble getting jobs. They're going to fall out of the labor market. They're not going to be good husband material. They're just at risk for long-term problems in life. Geary's study suggests early intervention for boys. Getting them to read more involves figuring out what they like to read so that they'll actually read it. And if you tell them to read something, they'll kind of ham and haw and they'll read a little bit of it, but they won't really read much. Figure out what they like to read and provide them those materials to kind of get them into something. Even, even if it's, you think it's fairly low level, anything that gives them practice is going to help. Helping girls balance their academic strengths and preferences could help end the female STEM career shortage. Maybe focusing on kind of the, the economic payoff to going into some of these fields and that, well, you know, if you have interest in literature, you can minor in that and, and get a good background in programming or technology or whatever that will make you very employable. Reporting for Sound Medicine, I'm Jill Dittmeyer. You can listen to Sound Medicine anytime by signing up for our free weekly podcast. It's at our website, soundmedicine.org. Plus, we're at Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, Swell AM, and iTunes. Just search for Sound Medicine Radio Hour. Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. 
Welcome back to Sound Medicine. I'm Barbara Lewis. As marijuana laws relax across the country, one of the questions that's being looked at now is whether marijuana-impaired driving is on the uptick as well. To find out, we turn to Dr. Mark Asbridge of Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia. He specializes in addictions and injury prevention, and he has looked at just this question. At first blush, you would suggest that if you increase access to something, that, that use would likely increase, and that's the case when we look at alcohol, for instance. But when you look at the question of marijuana use, you have to sort of contextualize uh, whether legal access has actually changed um, the use of marijuana in any substantial way. And what we know from some research is that where legalization is taking place in the U.S. or in other jurisdictions, that generally the, the evidence is a bit mixed, but generally it suggests that that use per se doesn't really change the prevalence of use. And, um, and part of that, I guess, has to do with the fact that uh, most people, even in, in, in where it's illegal, that want to use have little trouble actually getting marijuana and accessing it anyways. And so most of the individuals who actually want to use marijuana are, are using it before it becomes legal anyways. So. And you know what? I thought you were going to answer that exactly the opposite, that of course it would, you know, in, in increase the, the use. Yeah, no, the, actu- the, the evidence is actually uh, that this, there have been a number of studies, particularly in the U.S., actually, that have compared states with um, legalization and without legalization, have compared states with medical marijuana laws and without, and then we also have other jurisdictions like Portugal or parts of Europe, and they generally, over you know 15-year periods, didn't see any substantial change in use. So how well, how well do scientists understand the effects of marijuana use on, on driving safety? There's actually been a long history of research in this topic, even before we started talking really about uh, cannabis or marijuana use in driving. There was a lot of research, uh, largely um, experimental research using driving simulators, Um, quite a bit of research actually back in the 1980s and early 1990s, and uh, uh, just looking at what the effects of different doses of marijuana are on the ability to operate a motor vehicle generally. And, you know, cannabis uh, or marijuana produces varying effects, uh, you know, produces euphoria and relaxation and changes in perception and, you know, deficits in memory and pain relief and so on and so forth. But in terms of driving, it, it, it does have some distinct effects on, um, on ability to operate a motor vehicle. So, so those using marijuana tend to have uh, more difficulty tracking other vehicles, uh, there's uh, often a concern about maintaining your lane when you're driving uh, under the influence. Uh, there's often slower um, decision-making uh, than, obviously, than when you're not impaired, and, and uh, variable speeds and distance between vehicles are things that are sort of commonly cited uh, amongst uh, these studies, these experimental studies. Mm-hmm. So do drivers who are high operate their vehicles differently than drivers who are drunk? Sounds like it, somewhat. Um, there are some different characteristics. I mean, in both cases, you have impairment of function. Um, some of the common characteristics, you know, uh, alcohol drivers tend, drinking drivers tend to also lack uh, decision-making uh, and slower reaction times as well. But they tend to drive faster and more aggressively when they're impaired. And uh, there's a part of it is also related to, to perceptions. What's interesting about those who use marijuana is they often are impaired but don't perceive themselves to be impaired and feel that they're actually safe drivers. And what you'll often see sometimes they'll be driving really, really slowly, you know. And uh, whereas those using alcohol drinking drivers, there tends to be, there's a more of a recognition that they're impaired, uh, but, this, and, but they're doing it anyways. So there are some differences there. There's some similarities and some u- and unique pieces to that. You know, a lot of people use marijuana along with alcohol. I mean, what, when, you, when you're using it in combination, what sort of risk are you on the road? I think that's a, a, a really good uh, point to make, that you know, studies of marijuana, even when they're used at sort of low thresholds or low levels of impairment, when it's combined with alcohol, it tends to, what they would say, produce synergistic effects, even greater risk than each of using each substance alone. So that's something that we have to be really, really careful with in understanding the, the, these interactions between substances and, and how they really, really uh, impact uh, on, on driving uh, road safety and in collision risk. How easy is it for 
a police officer to measure the degree of impairment in someone who's been smoking marijuana, you know, compared to, you know, we have a breathalyzer or a coordination test used to measure alcohol. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's part of the issue with enforcement. It is not the same. We don't have a we don't have a nice simple device like a breath breathalyzer, which you know not only detects the presence of alcohol in the driver, but it tells you a level at which they've used, uh, and which also points to how recently they've used alcohol. And so that's a really nice package that you can get when you use that device. Part of the issue uh, is that we have different methods that we try to uh, the police use and one of them that's uh, is uh, is based on something called the drug recognition expert program uh, and these this was actually developed in the US in California in the 1970s by the police and has been adopted in across the US across Canada and in some other parts of the world as well where officers are trained to detect impairment by drugs in drivers who have been stopped or pulled over, whether it's a random check or if they've been pulled over for some sort of erratic driving. So the first thing you need to see is the erratic driving, which is the probable cause for pulling somebody over. And then when you engage with the individual, you would first assess for alcohol. If alcohol wasn't present, but you felt the person was still impaired by something, you would either call in a drug recognition expert, or if you were one yourself, you could do this procedure. And what it is is really a it's a combination of what you just described. It's a combination of, of some of these tests, agility tests, but it's also mixed in with an assessment of biomarkers, so looking at uh, uh, pupil dilation and redness and sweating and uh, a whole bunch of things, actually 12-step process. And from that process, they can make a recommendation that you are uh, impaired, and they often uh, will have to also assign what class of drugs you're impaired. So they would actually, whether it's THC or marijuana or if it was cocaine or whatnot, they could actually identify which drug based on the biomarkers that were present and the way that you reacted. And then that would be followed up with a urine test to confirm the presence of the drug. Mm-hmm. So do you see the day coming, though? Is there, is there you know, something that we can talk about, like blood alcohol level, you know, that, that always gets quoted? Um, yeah. Is there something equivalent yeah, this is the challenging piece is at what point is there a cut point? And the one thing about alcohol is that the, the amount consumed in terms of standard drinks or glasses of beer, we have a pretty good idea that if you drink, you know, X number of beers, this will produce a likely blood alcohol content of, you know, 50 milligrams or 80 milligrams, whatever the legal cut point is. With uh, with marijuana, it's not as clear because of variations in how we use marijuana whether it's um, inhaled, how long it's inhaled, the potency, how many puffs you take, uh, you know, so the ingestion method, all these different things make it more challenging. So there's not a clear relationship between how much is consumed and what your likely impairment is going to be. And blood is the, really the only way that you can as- properly assess recent use of cannabis. If we take urine, for instance, that can measure use that goes back many, many days or weeks, which is not really relevant to the driving today or driving right now, whereas these studies were based on blood samples that measured use within the last two hours or three hours, which is really what you want to get to if you're trying to measure driver impairment. However, some states and some jurisdictions internationally have cut points like 0.8, 0.5, like they do for alcohol. They've set it up at different levels, and, you know, some places are, uh, you know, with nanograms, uh, a microliter, which is not really helpful for discussion, but they have certain cut points and they set instrumentation to those cut points. Um, so some of the other instruments that are used, there are saliva tests that uh, can be used at the roadside that are being implemented in some places, and they have cut points where they sort of, they turn, a, you know, a, uh, they would give you a reading after about 10 minutes of the saliva swipe about actually how much you likely have in your system of, of, of THC, and then can proceed based on whatever the jurisdictional law is about how, whether they would charge you or not. That's still being developed um, and, but it's being tested in many, many places. So it's not a very clean, clear um, technology and enforcement process. Uh, uh, it's, it's still evolving, I guess. So is marijuana's effect on people's driving ability related to how much experience uh, that they have with the drug? I certainly think that that definitely plays a role. There, there's, uh, there is a tolerance that uh, the use of any drug or medication produces a tolerance, and and so a heavy user, uh, frequent user is likely going to 
uh, probably learn to compensate and drive, uh, you know, uh, while impaired, or would take a, considerably more, obviously, of the of the drug in order to be impaired. So uh, there is that kind of experience, and and that's actually been, you know, uh, one of the, some of the flaws with uh, some of the research is when we, you know, if you do a, an experimental study with people and give them give them marijuana. Um, ethically, we don't give marijuana to people who have never used marijuana. So we bring in regular users who will be given marijuana, and then we test them on these driving performance measures. Then you look in the real world where you'll have somebody who's using for the first time or is only used you know, minimally or infrequently. And so what's the impact on driving for those individuals? And that's, a, that's less clear. So that presents more of an issue. Uh, when we think about road safety. And now would the assumption be that if people have less experience with it, that their driving would be impaired yep. more? Okay. Yes, exactly. That's, that's, the, that's what, the, what limited evidence we do have would suggest, that there's definitely a, a greater deficit in, in novice users, if lack of a better word. Dr. Asbridge, thank you so much for talking with me on Sound Medicine. It's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you. The pleasure's mine as well. Dr. Mark Asbridge is an associate professor in the Department of Community Health and Epidemiology at Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia, Canada. Everybody sing along this time. Don't go guard that joint, my friend. Pass it over to me. Don't go guard that joint, my friend. And finally this week, we want to continue our conversation about the future of rural hospitals. Last week, you may recall, we spoke with Dr. Daniel Dirksen of the Center for Rural Health at the University of Arizona. We talked about the challenges that face rural hospitals due to higher expenses and often lower Medicaid reimbursement. More than two dozen rural hospitals have closed in the past year in the United States. And the forecast is that as many as 20 percent of them could be shut down by 2020. And that means longer drives to obtain care, fewer good jobs in a lot of communities. But Dr. Dirksen told us there are things that can be done to shore up small hospitals. There's a, a number of tools available uh, to communities to help support their rural hospital and and many uh, successful communities have done that. Uh, sometimes it's a small gross receipts tax, uh, you know, a, a one cent gross receipts tax that helps support the operations uh, of a hospital to get it through the ups and downs of payment changes and, and changes in regulations and things like that. Other times uh, there, there's communities that do fundraising and, and other things that help support the infrastructure so that it remains there. Because these hospitals often provide good jobs and affect, through a multiplier effect, other jobs in the community, it's also important for the health and the economic infrastructure for a community to invest in keeping those services readily available. Many communities have, have figured out ways to help underwrite the expenses uh, of these types of things, and uh, rural legislators are often very instrumental at the state level in making sure that, for example, in Arizona, uh, they created a critical access hospital pool and a way to help subsidize the uncompensated care that these rural and critical access hospitals provide to help defray the costs of charity care and care that otherwise wouldn't be paid for. Now, as we watch this trend continue, I mean, are there other difficulties that rural hospitals are facing that we need to be aware of? I think one of the particular challenges for rural hospitals is being able to keep up with these changes. It's changes in the way that they're being paid. It's changes in what the expectations are for performance improvement and quality assurance. I think as consumers, as individuals are covered and they're paying more out of pocket in the form of uh, cost sharing and deductibles and co-pays, individuals really want more transparency and accountability for the services that they're receiving, both in the hospitals and the clinics. And so I think there's going to be more of a demand by individuals is more covered through the coverage provisions that began in January of 2014 with the Affordable Care Act, their Medicaid expansion and the marketplace. Um, I think there's going to be more demand for transparency and accountability 
for the value of healthcare delivered. And so I think we're going to see more higher expectations by payers and individuals for really understanding what are the real costs of this particular procedure, this particular service at this hospital, and people will be able to compare. Your choices aren't as robust in a rural area. There may only be a limited menu of choices for where you can get your health services. And so that's really one of the reasons that you have to be creative about how you finance the delivery of health care and make sure that health infrastructure isn't eliminated as some of these hospitals struggle to, to make sure their margins are positive and that they can continue their operations. You can't be all things to all people. You have to figure out a way. If you don't provide the service, you know, is there a, another entity that you can partner with to make sure that the community you serve gets the services it's really demanding? I think that's going to be one of the crucial elements for those uh, rural hospitals that figure out a way to continue to adapt to this, <laughs> you know, really rapidly changing environment. Well, Dr. Daniel Dirksen, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Dr. Daniel Dirksen is a professor at the University of Arizona and director of its Center for Rural Health. And that's it for this week's program. You can post comments about what you heard today on Facebook or submit suggestions for future shows on our website. Just go to soundmedicine.org. And while you're there, you can subscribe to our free podcast so you can listen anytime that's convenient to you. Sound Medicine senior producer is Nora Hyatt. Eric Metcalf produces our interviews. Chris Lieber records and edits the program, and he chooses our music. Steve Ali of Jazzville Studios wrote our theme music. Carmel Roth is the managing editor of Sound Medicine News with help from Andrea Moraskin. The executive producer is Eric Eggleton. I'm Barbara Lewis, wishing you good health. Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. Thanks for listening. For more information about anything you heard on this podcast, please go to our website, soundmedicine.org. I'm Barbara Lewis, wishing you good health.